Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the 8th chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel, page 632 in our church Bibles. I'm going to read the whole chapter and get underway, and then we will pray. So if you're wondering why we're in Daniel 8 this morning, and this is where we should be, we've started late fall last year, working verse by verse through Daniel, and we took some uh, a different direction during the Christmas season, and then here we are now this morning in Daniel chapter 8. Let's hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ula Canal. I looked up, and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came toward the two-horned ram. I had been standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, And another one, holy one, said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary, and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ula calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, and the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation, 
but will not have the same power. In this latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper, and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that's been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Okay, let's pray together, please, as we ask God for his help. Father, we give glory to your name, and we bow before you, Father, in reverence and certainly, God, in absolute dependence. As we think about our body and those sick or who've known loss, we pray for George Allen. We ask that your mercy would continue and that he would be made well. We ask the same for Mike, your heart, and comfort God and help for the family as they have been going through this long battle with cancer. We thank you, God, that Tom Geisler is finding progress. We pray that it will continue. We ask, God, that you would have mercy and extend um, your mercy to the family of Steve Harthen as they mourn loss. Give them grace and let it abound. Tia Klein and her family, God, need grace, clarity, and peace, Father. And the family of Sierra Rose as well, they're grieving. And they need gospel comfort. They need Jesus. And so does Joe Worms, God, as, he, as we thank you for his recovery. It's just an amazing thing what you did, how you rescued him so quickly from his heart attack. So God, now as we look to your word, we, we want you to help us, just like we said in Kids in the Kingdom. We, we are in tune with our frailty, God. And we want the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, life under God, as we have it now, is not heaven. It will never be heaven. There is nothing we can learn. There is nothing we can learn and then apply to make it heaven. If we think life is heaven or can be heaven, one of two things are probably true. Number one, we have a very low view of heaven. Or two, we may have forgotten that we are our brother and sister's keeper. So not being in the battle, we don't long for home. Now we do have good days, don't we? In fact, maybe some of you would say you have a lot of good days and we would thank God for them. I mean, one of the things I do every day, believe it or not, is I pray for you and among all the things that I pray for you is Numbers chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. And what I do is I say this, I have all your faces pass through my mind. And some of you, a few times. So it's the Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Right out of the gate. Sometimes in my bed, I pray those things. But still, 
Still, the good days are a bit stained. I mean, even if it's just to realize that in the course of the good day, the good day will soon come to an end, and tomorrow, if it comes, who knows what it will bring. Or even in some of the good days, we get bad news about people we care about. So this is not heaven. It will never be heaven. In light of this, pastor and author Tim Keller rightly said, if we add anything to Jesus as a requirement to be happy, that anything, whatever it is, that's our real king. Bears repeating, doesn't it? If we add anything to Jesus as a requirement to be happy, that anything, whatever it is, as good as it might seem, that is our real king. Now, I begin this way purposely because here in Daniel 8, Daniel's given another vision, which came two years after the first vision he was given in chapter 7. The vision took place around 549, 550 B.C. If your Bible's open, you'll see this in the third year, verse 1, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign. And what makes this vision so important is that Daniel, who is somewhere on the backside of 70 years of age, maybe even 80, He's beginning to understand because he's reading Jeremiah, maybe he's reading Isaiah, that God's people who are in exile, which was to last for 70 years, God's people now are beginning to see, and he's beginning to see, it's all drawing to a close. And God's people are going to go back to Jerusalem, back to home. However, what he's also beginning to see as a result of this vision in chapter 8 is that those returning from the exile... And those generations which would come after them, they're not going to have it all wine and roses when they return. It's not going to be paradise. It's not going to be only good days. In other words, when they finally get back home and, you know, they empty the boxes and they begin to make a life, eventually, what is depicted here in this vision in chapter 8, as awful as it is, especially the latter part of the vision, which in all honesty, we won't get till next Sunday, but especially that latter part, that's going to come to them. It's going to come to them. So what God is doing through Daniel, and this is important, Daniel is being forewarned, and God's people are being forewarned, Israel, about a period of time of severe persecution that's going to be in the future, and to promise them that their sovereign God, who we've been learning week by week, is over all the affairs of life and time and seeming chance. This God will restrict the days of persecution, and He will destroy the persecutor, and he's going to use that time for good. That's it. This is primarily why the vision is given. So we need to tie ourselves to this. God, through the vision, he's forewarning his people, Israel, about a period of time of severe persecution in the future, and he promises them that their sovereign God, who is over everything, he's going to restrict the days of persecution, and he will destroy that persecutor, and he's going to use the time for good. And loved ones, what we're going to discover then in time is by dent the principle that that is our lesson as well. This is what we need to hold to as we work through Daniel 8. Will you think with me for a minute? What does history teach us? What is the undeniable lessons, if you would, of history? I'm going to give you two. Number one, history teaches us that man as man will try to make himself God. It's right out of the gate in Genesis 3. And nothing's changed. Frankly, every time we decide to sin, it's like us going nose to nose to God and saying, you're not God, I am. Pride, power, 
toxic combination. Man as man will either make himself God or he will fashion his own God to suit him the way he needs to. Professor Herbert Butterfield, he taught, at, he taught history at Cambridge University. He had a classic 80, uh, essay in the mid part of the 20th century. This is part of it. Judgment on history falls heaviest on those who come to think themselves gods, who fly in the face of providence in history, who put their trust in man-made systems and worship the work of their own hands and who say, by the strength of my right arm, do I have this victory? In other words, what he's saying is that if we don't think it's God and we think it's our own strength, then we'll have no one to thank but ourselves and we'll have no one to adore and no one to live for but ourselves. So a person like Nikita Khrushchev, remember him? He was the Soviet leader back in the 50s. As soon as the satellite Sputnik went into the air, this is what he said. We will go right up to heaven if there is a heaven. And to the throne of God, if there is a throne. And we will topple God, if there is a God. Lesson number one of history. Man as man will make himself God. Defy God's truth. Verse 12b, throw the truth to the ground. Or he'll create a God made in his image. Second lesson. Nothing, no nation, No ruler lasts forever. I mean, it's a wonder that those things need to be said, but it still needs to be said. Egypt fell to Assyria. The Assyrians to the Babylonians. Athens fell to Rome. Rome to the barbarians. And so it goes. Where is the Soviet Empire? Where is the British Empire? It's all in books, museums, relics. Nothing lasts forever except the rule of God in Jesus Christ who holds all things together. That's the lesson of history. Therefore, what's being described here in pictures, and remember we said apocalyptic literature is heavy on pictures and images and apparently animals. All that's being said here will come to God's people and Daniel will see this unfold. Now, we said that chapter 7 was a kind of panoramic view of history, a grand view from the time of Daniel until the consummation of God's kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ's return. So what's happening here in chapter 8 is not the big panoramic vision. It's actually a small portion, a certain period of time, roughly 400 years in that panorama that was given in chapter 7. So it might help you to think of it like this. Chapter 7 is a big picture. Chapter 8 is a red marker circled. And what's inside the red marker circled? That's chapter 8. That's where our attention should be. Big picture, chapter 7 of history. Small picture, Chapter 8, that's in the circle. And this will help you if you keep it before you. Okay, then we just got a couple of points this morning. Number one, explanation and interpretation. So in the sequence of four kingdoms, Daniel 7, Daniel chapter 8 concerns the second and third kingdom, which would come after Babylon, which of course Daniel was in. So verse 2. Right? Five centuries roughly before the birth of Christ. We read, In my vision I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. Now Susa was to become, was to become, one of the prominent cities of the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire, which would soon overthrow the Babylonian Empire. The citadel of Susa also was the winter home or would become the winter home of many Persian kings and many people who could afford such things. 
And it was to be in the future under God. For those of you who know your Bible, that would be the home of Esther and Nehemiah as well. Its modern day location would be southwestern Iran, which is a city of Khuzestan. Now, it wasn't much of a place at the time of Daniel's vision, but it would be. And again there, vision, verse 3, begins with animals. A ram with two horns, and the horns were long. In fact, one of the horns was longer than the other, but only later. Verse 4, Daniel watched the ram charging and destroying everywhere except the east. And the extent of the ram's power, verse 4b, he did as he pleased and he became great. Now, one of the things that's nice about this vision is that we don't have to struggle as much with kind of speculative interpretation as in the previous vision. Here we know that this ram of verse 4, and I hope your Bible's open, is identified by the angel Gabriel himself. That's what we're told in verse 16. So the two-horned ram, verse 20, says Gabriel, and we can trust Gabriel, right? That ram represents the king of Media and Persia, the Medo-Persian Empire. And what does history record for us? Well, it tells us that at first the Medes were the prominent and dominant part of that kingdom of the two. However, soon after, Cyrus and the Persian Empire, they assimilated the means and they became prominent and they became dominant. And over the long term, they established the largest empire the world had ever known up till then. And that's why we're told one horn is longer than the other, but only later. Persia, later. And that's why we're also told, verse 4b, the ram did as he pleased and became great. And again, they did become great. The largest empire the world had ever known up till then. Okay, so far so good, right? Verse 4, covering a whole lot of geography and a whole lot of history succinctly and accurately. And verse 20, giving clarity. Now, verse 5, as was Daniel's pattern, he begins to put these things to thought. Now, that's one of the things I like about Daniel, and I'm trying to be more like in all honesty. I mean, the first thing I thought of when Daniel did that was Mary, right? Mary, young Mary, seeing Jesus at his young age, seeing what she saw, hearing what she heard. What does the Gospel of Luke said? That Mary just took those things to heart. She pondered them in her heart. If you would, she sat by the fire and she thought. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? She didn't go right to press. <laughs> Daniel's not going right to press. He's trying to think these things through. However, suddenly, you see this, if your Bible's open, Daniel sees a goat. And this goat, sort of kind of like a unicorn, has a big horn in the middle between his eyes, and he's coming from the west. And he's moving fast. If there's any kids in here, he's moving like the flash. Verse 5b, the cro crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Reminds me of the very first Superman movie I ever saw. Right? And there's young Clark Kent. He was running next to a locomotive. And of course, he's faster than a locomotive. And the way the movie portrayed it is that young Clark Kent was not even touching the ground. It's a sad thing that those things come to my mind when I'm studying, but they do. I should pay you for those moments instead of you paying me. Nevertheless, verse 6, sorry about that. The one-horned goat charges the two-horned ram. Right? So this is something like Animal Planet. This is a clash of two civilizations, and, and God describes it in the vision as two animals clashing. You know, the bam! Verse 7, a furious attack. And the one-horned goat 
defeated the two-horned ram, and no one could rescue the ram. Verse 8, the goat became great, very great. But as these things go, at the peak of its power, the large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the heaven. Okay, question, who's the goat? Who are these horns? Help, Gabriel, help, right? Verse 21, he tells us the goat is the king of Greece. The large horn in the middle is the first king. The four horns, which replace the long, large horn in the middle, is four other kingdoms which will emerge from the one, but will not have the same power. Now, once again, even if you just know some portion of history, you can see the reliability and the accuracy and the authority of the Bible as God himself penned by Daniel, um, declaring this truth in a vision told by Gabriel about 200 years before these things had taken place. Okay, so is this a guess? No, this is God. This is God. Because in 12 brief years, the Greeks conquered the entire civilized world without ever being defeated, right? The ram lost to the goat, right? So they became, the goat, Greece, became the superpower of the world, faster than any other world empire. And if you just got a map, and you saw the amount of territory that Alexander the Great, and we'll get to here in just a second, that he conquered, he would be like, how in the world in just 12 years? I mean, you think through the logistics of feeding that many people and, and moving from place to place, health and all that kind of stuff. And so it makes good sense when you think it through, verse 5b, their feet, as it were, never touching the ground. And of course, alluded to it a second ago, most Bible scholars tell us this large horn there in the middle, that is Alexander the Great. He was the king of those victories. In fact, in, in just three years, Alexander the Great essentially crushed the seemingly undefeatable Persian Empire. The Persian Empire had dominated for 200 years. They had known no loss until here comes this goat. Here comes Alexander. And, and he beats them. Three decisive battles, history tells us. Each time, more Persian troops added to the battle. Each time, more Persian troops dead. In fact, the first battle, 20,000 Persian deaths against only 100 Greek deaths. And the two preceding battles, they only became worse for the Persians. Alexander's empire would stretch from Europe all the way to North India. And you know, the funny thing about it is he never realized that God was using this empire, this Greek empire, its culture and its language to prepare the way for the coming of Christ, right? So this is the expansion of the gospel, the saving of souls. And if you, on the human level, you said, holy cow, if Alexander doesn't do what he does, then there's no way the gospel could advance that swiftly in that region. This is... Mystery, right? No man would think these things up. Romans 11, who, who has known the mind of the Lord? And so Alexandra, in 323 B.C., he goes back to Babylon. Happy? No, he's sick. He's depressed. He's degenerate. And he's a drunkard. And he dies. He dies one month before his 33rd birthday. He dies, and history tells us, in the very palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. So think with me. He was Superman at 21. Prodigy. He's a dead man at 32. 
Why? Well, the Bible helps us, doesn't it? All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers, and flowers fall, but the word of the Lord is forever. That's 1 Peter. Verse 8, the large horn was broken off at the height and at the peak of its power. So where is he now? Did he think he would live forever? And, and knowing the state that he came back to in Babylon, how empty was his victories? How empty all of his accumulations, how unhelpful everything he could boast about, all his territory, all his dominant, how empty the fulfillments of his flesh. He had the world, and the world was not enough. So if you think about that, and I was thinking about that, it tells me that it's not so corny when we say only Jesus can satisfy. It's not church talk. It's not something we should say. It's something we should know and believe at the core of our heart. He is the bread of life. He is the living water. Take a drink of Jesus and you'll never know thirst again. That's what he said. So, so we might not be trying to conquer the world. I mean, we understand that. But as man as man, we want to win. We want to tell people we're winners. We want to accumulate we want to feed the flesh. We would want to, others to feel our power because we so want to be full. But what did Jesus always teach? He taught that we cannot bear the emptiness and the shallowness of a life turned in upon itself. And that was, that was in Alexander. Verse 8, at the peak of his power, at the height of his power, he was broken. He was broken. Now, is there a lesson in that? Well, by golly, there is a lesson. If we just stop and think. Uzziah, you know this, 2 Chronicles 20. He was greatly helped by God. Until what? Until he became powerful. And when he became powerful, right? So at 17 years old, he was a king prodigy. He was in Midas touch, 50 plus years reigning. Doing great things. And then he comes to the end of his life and you know, you know what, that whole priestly stuff, I can go in there and I can do what he's doing. I mean, I've been pretty great since 17. So I can go in there and do the things that God said not to do. And what happened? Well, God gave him leprosy. And so the last little words that we read about Uzziah is not how great he was. It's that the people would go by a little shack and they would say, there, there goes Uzziah. He has leprosy. Where is Maximilian? He was a leader of the French Revolution. Where is he? Well, he's dead. He gained power. He had it for a while, but he was so obsessed with power that anybody would cross him, he would take off their heads. Where is he? He's dead. Why is he dead? All men are like grass. He lost his power, and it's ironic. He lost his head. It was taken from him. This week I learned something about the Nuremberg Trials I had never known before. Nuremberg Trials, if you don't know, this was the Allies' World War II military tribunal against Nazism and the six million Jews they, they murdered. So you have 12 of these elite Nazi officers on trial. All 12 found guilty. Of the 12, 10 of the defendants were hung. As soon as they died, their bodies were immediately cremated. Their ashes immediately put together in one box. The box was immediately put in the back of a truck and that truck went to the 
Easter River, and they took that box, and they dumped the ashes in the river. Just, just dumped it in the river, and that was it. I mean, less than a year ago, I mean, think with me. Less than a year ago, it was a power, it was authority and glory, and who can stop us? And now what are they? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Only the kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom. And only by God's grace can we enter into that kingdom. And Jesus is the key to all of it. And yeah, in God's kingdom, there are really many rulers, but there's only one king. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The ram, Persian Empire, had his day, gone. The goat, which defeated the ram, Greece, had its day, gone. World empires past, world empires present, world empires future. They will have their day and they'll be gone. Listen to the Bible. God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He brings princes to nothing and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Right? Ashes in the Easter River dumped. That's it. And you see, we need to take these things to heart. Verse 8, the Bible foretells what history reveals. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, his large horn was broken off and in its place... Four other horns grew. And that's exactly what happened as history tells us. They tried to keep Alexander's empire together. They could not. The Greek empire split into four horns, verse 8, which were four kingdoms, verse 22. As four of Alexander's generals split, took separate parts of the Greek kingdom, and they could never manage to bring the, the, the kingdom to its prominence. Just like the Bible foretold. Okay, ram, goat, and finally, a third image, and we won't spend much time at all because we're going to save it, Lord willing, for the next Sunday. Verse 9, out of one of them came another horn. So out of the four came the one. And this little horn which grows is where the vision is headed to. And this is what I mean. You put all the pieces together, the, the ram and the goat and all activity, it all culminates to this final scene in chapter 8. In other words, this is history from the point of view of God. Wait, this is how God connects the dots. So, so history is like, well, they were great and they were great. But God's like, yeah, you know what? They're just part of the plan to, to get this little horn to come to this scene so I can help my people. So, yeah, we should study the battles, study the men, a whole lot to learn. Territory, absolutely. Because they help us understand the dominance of God and the wisdom of God. But this little horn, which, by the way, is not the same little horn as chapter 7. So don't be confused. This little horn is what Daniel's vision is heading to. So in chapter 7, the little horn appears to represent the final Antichrist. In chapter 8, this little horn is only a, a type of Antichrist. And actually, we can give him a name. Antiochus Epiphanes, 2nd century B.C. And Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture of a man on steroids in his defiance of God. He, he is anti-God. He, he's, his efforts are against God. He throws truth to the ground. I and mean, if you want to give it a modern day picture, he takes his Bible and closes it up and never does the life with Bible. 
He never does his life with Bible. He never does his life and thinking and, and, and planning with the Bible shut. He throws truth to the ground. And he addresses all of his destructive energy towards the Jewish people, towards God's truth, and towards the sanctuary. Why the sanctuary? Because that was a place where people would worship God. So he wants that place gone. Now we need to stop. Let me just give you two applications and then we're done. Number one, if we didn't have the conviction that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction and training, for righteousness, so that the people of God can be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work. If we didn't believe that, why in the world would we be preaching from Daniel chapter 8? Have you ever thought about that? Right? There is no way, there's no way that I would want to preach from Daniel 8. I mean, I was walking to church on Tuesday morning, and I was walking in the back part of the parking lot, and it's a little slippery out there, and I'm like, man, if I could just twist my ankle... If I, and just go down, I bet they'd give me at least two weeks. I could take two weeks, and maybe they would forget that we're in Daniel at all. And then I wouldn't have to do nine, and didn't have to do ten, and so on. This could be great. Is, is it worth it, Joe? Is it worth it? And it took me a few seconds, in all honesty. You think I'm kidding, but that, you know, I'm, <laughs> I wasn't kidding. We've got to preach the whole counsel of God. And the whole counsel of God is what? The whole word of God. That's why we're here. Second thing, and probably more, more important, are you beginning to see how Daniel will pull the roots of its students down, lower and lower again and again to the safe place and understanding that, yes, God is actually sovereign over everyone and everything and which takes place. He's over nations. He's over kings. He's over people. He's over me. It's the one message throughout the book that God does rule everything and all the events of time and seeming chance. No, God rules over time, over people. His providence is real. It's a soft pillow. It can be a soft pillow. That, that nothing is left to chance. What does the psalmist say, 139? All the days of my life are written in the book before one of them came to be. Even before a word gets off my tongue, God knows it completely. So Daniel says, God makes it so all the decisions of tyrants, all the events of history, all actions of government, all the sinfulness of humanity will serve his will. And this is, as Margaret Clarkson says, this is the one impregnable rock the suffering human heart must cling to. See, we need to hold to this sovereignty. We need to make it our own, especially when the dark days come. God is sovereign. He overrules and He will overwhelm all human evil. Evil. So Daniel and his friends, they're in massive trouble, right? It looks like the end. Chapter 1, Daniel, just eat the steak of the king, please, or you're going to die. A few chapters later, guys, just bow to the statue. No one's going to know. If you don't, you're going to die. Daniel, just don't pray for 30 days. Everything, just zip it, Daniel, please, or you're going to die. And what happens? God rescues, and God uses these terrible situations, even the terrible injustice of chapter 5 that they come under to rescue them and to show the world, right? To show the world and to show at least two world kings that God does rule over everything, all world empires and every one of the events 
are ordered by Him, some allowed by Him. He rules, and therefore, because God rules, you will know that His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And you're just passing through. You're just part of the plan. And you need to come to grips with that. So, so here's our lesson on a personal level. As our life unfolds and difficult situations come to us and we're like, what in the dickens is going on here, God? This is too much for me, God. I can't take much more of this, God. We hear God whisper through His Word, fear not, dear child, the days of affliction The days of suffering are always numbered. Always. But the beauty and the joy of heaven, that's unending. That's unending. Eight chapters thus far to drive this into our psyche. So we may be helped greatly when the day of trial comes. Amen. Thanks for your attention. Let's pray together, please. God and Father, we we really can't thank you enough to know that the days of persecution are always limited, that the persecutors will be destroyed, and that your kingdom, God, is forever. Jesus, you were the one who made a way for us to be part of the kingdom. You took on our sin and you took away our condemnation when you died on the cross. You walked through a world which was ugly and cruel. You brought peace to people, to creation. You quieted waters. You quieted souls. Took on great humiliation. You endured it with peace, confidence. You were even even quoting scripture from the cross and praying for people from the cross. Who is like you, Lord Jesus Christ? So, Father, show us Christ. Show us that as Christians we stand before your throne wearing his perfect robe of righteousness. Please protect and defend us in these days and melt our heart with the truth of Daniel 8. So we can grow up, we can obey you, and live a life of thanksgiving and affection and effect with unshakable joy in this fallen world. Now may the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn towards you now and give you peace. For Jesus' sake we ask these things. Amen.